If you have a Bible, it's going to be a little while before we get there, but I'm going to be hopefully speaking from Psalm 45 today. Um, and those of you that don't know me, um, I was thinking about this this morning. I met Brad when we first moved here as a family into, we live in Warren, Ohio. We moved here back into this area 2004. So how many years is that? 13, 14, 14 years ago. And I came back here from Kansas City. My kids were real little. And uh, because my father-in-law, many of you know him, Jim Erb, you call him Grandpa Erb here, um, had invited me to come back. I was working in marketing for a manufacturing company out there to um, come and be his associate pastor. So when I moved back here with my family, um, Brad and I got to know each other because um, the very first assignment I had at the church, Pleasant Valley Church over in Youngstown, was to fill in for the youth pastor that had stepped down. And so Brad was friends with Jim, and Brad and I kind of rolled up our sleeves and just started ministering to young people for about eight months together and really got to connect with Brad and Adrian and their heart. They were living in Elwood City at the time, so just this is a little bit of history. And Brad and I just really connected as kind of spiritual brothers, and we've ever since then just have um, prayed, and I've, I have love watching what God has done in and through Brad and Adrian um, through this AOX family. I mean, you guys have, it's just been a tremendous blessing to see how my father-in-law has poured into you guys, what you guys drew out of him, um, and just to see the emphasis on spiritual family, on a love for Jesus, and learning how to walk that out as you disciple and make disciples, not only here, but in the nations as well. And so it's been a tremendous honor, tremendous blessing to be a part of this, even though I haven't been here for a while. And um, just, I said this earlier to Liza, but um, I just want to say thank you to this community for reaching out to my mother-in-law and my 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 family as my father-in-law is Jim Herb passed away uh, last last fall, and my mother-in-law particularly has was really blessed, um, as many of you guys just reached out and just showed practical demonstrations of love, and that meant a lot to her. She she's not a real verbal person, but that meant a lot to her. And um, so yeah, so Brad, if you're listening, thank you. We we love you, bless you, and just um, love you as a spiritual brother, and just glad and honored to be here. Before we get to Psalm 45, um, I want to share kind of like an introduction. Psalm 45 is a, is a passage, is a, is a particular psalm that I've been in for a long, long, long time, probably, probably a couple of years as a hobby. And, and I've kind of been stuck in it because it is a psalm. It's, it was written about King Solomon, but many, many writers, many, many Bible teachers, many Bible scholars ultimately use it as a pointing to Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a psalm about a king on his wedding day. And it's a psalm probably written about Solomon, but ultimately it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ because the writers of Hebrew, Hebrews actually pull a couple passages out of Psalm 45 and use it um, in its fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I want to remind you guys of, you know this already, and I've shared this from time to time when I've been here before, is that our salvation and our life in God, our internal life and salvation is, is more than just having our sins forgiven. Our salvation and eternal life is having our spirits awakened, our spiritual eyes, our spiritual senses awakened to discover the worth of Jesus Christ. 
Um, Jesus said in John chapter 17, he said, Father, you've given me authority over everybody on the planet. I mean, if you can wrap your hands or head around that, that's pretty amazing. But Father, you have given me authority over everyone on the planet. And I thank you for those that you've given me because I, in turn, am going to give them eternal life. And here's what he says eternal life is. He says, this is eternal life. Eternal life is knowing you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And that word knowing is not just an intellectual understanding. It's not just a mental comprehension of facts. It is, the actual Greek word is gnosko, and it's a word for experientially knowing. It's the difference between reading the ingredients or reading the menu versus tasting the meal. It's that kind of experiential knowing. It's the difference between, you know, looking at the ocean and rolling up your, your jeans and stepping your, getting your feet wet in the ocean. It's that kind of difference. It's the difference of, you know, maybe reading uh, an ingredients on something and then actually tasting and seeing it. Reading a menu and, and versus, you know, biting into a medium rare quarter pound steak with, you know, onion rings on top and pulled pork and, you know, red onion on top of it and horseradish sauce. You know, it's the difference between seeing and tasting something. John Piper says seeing and savoring versus just understanding intellectually. And for many, 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 many years, I grew up in a Christian family and I, I knew a lot of facts about God. I accepted him as, as, as a little kid in elementary school and, um, but Jesus, for me, was kind of like a get-out-of-hell card. He, and I've shared this before, but he was like my insurance card that I kept in my back pocket. And when I needed to, I just pulled it out to alleviate guilt or, you know, give me a, a sense that it's going to be okay. And, but as a young adult, I kind of came to a place in my life where I couldn't escape just the brokenness and the confusion and the fact that no matter how much I tried, there were things in my life that just were going to cause me to live a life that I knew was a compromising life, a, a life that was just filled with compromise and, and just a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain in my life. And he, the Lord allowed me to come to a place in my life where for the first time I realized that I was spiritually bankrupt. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For yours is the kingdom of God. That's not a very fun experience when you come to a place in your life where you realize all your good effort and all your Bible memorization, all your church attendance, everything that you knew really doesn't amount to much. But when you come to that place and you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt apart from the, the goodness and the mercy and the righteousness of God through Christ, um, that's not necessarily an easy place to be, but it's a good place to be. And without going into all the details, I, he allowed me to come to a place as a young adult. I just kind of cried out. I said, Lord, I, I don't have the power to change what's in my life and what is controlling and influencing my life, but you can. And it was kind of a place of just real brokenness. And the Lord, I'll never, ever forget this. And this is, this is why passages like Psalm 45 were really precious to me. It was not an audible voice. It was not some type of vision it was just a very quiet but very authoritative and loving internal impression and he he spoke and he just kind of simply the idea was john you know a lot of facts about me which i did i was a religion major i was a psychology major but i also was a business marketing major 
and um, ended up working in the advertising and PR for, for, uh, field. And he said, you know a lot of facts about me, but you don't know me as a person. And that might not seem like, that's kind of like, duh. But to, to me at that time, in that place in my journey, um, religion was like a Band-Aid for me. Religion and my understanding and my comprehension of the scriptures and my understanding of salvation and what God was accomplishing through the covenants and, and through the, the work of Jesus on the cross and his death and his resurrection burial, that was kind of like, it was stuff that I was using to cover up just areas of tremendous um, brokenness and pain in my life. And the Lord just began to peel that away. And at the same time, he began to invite me, I want you to follow me. I want you to learn as I'm, I help you through my word and through the Holy Spirit to get to know me as a person. I want you to have real, I want you to dip your feet in water. I don't want you just to understand and observe me from a distance, but I want you to come and go on a lifelong discovery of understanding and experiencing who I am in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul um, describes salvation in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says this, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's a reference to what book in the Bible? Genesis, the, the God, that God, you know, who created, you know, the Pacific Ocean and the Grand Canyon and Saturn and, and in, the, in the Milky Way, that guy, that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts. So our hearts were spiritually darkened. And he, why did he do it? And here's the purpose. He made his lights shine into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge, and there's the word knowledge. It's not mental knowledge, but it's experiential, heart-to-heart, firsthand knowledge, experiential knowledge, to give us the light of the knowledge, experiential knowledge of God's glory displayed where? Do you know the rest of the phrase? Displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. So God who spoke Genesis into Creation, the very God that's holding you together at a subatomic and molecular level right now, who's keeping the, the earth around the, 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 the orbit, who's keeping everything in place just by the power of his word, that very creator, when you came to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you on the, on the cross, God literally was speaking into your heart, said, let light come in. Because I want there to be a place of light so that in that place, in that heart that I'm enlightening and their spiritual senses are getting awakened, I want to give on an ongoing progressive basis the revelation, the light of experiential encounters and knowledge of what my worth is like, what my majesty is like, what my magnificence, what my nobility and and the glory and the beauty of who I am as it shines forth in the precious face of my son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. When you look at the sun and you, and you feel its warmth, or you, or you have to put sunglasses on, which you don't get to do a lot in western Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio, that, those rays that are emanating from the sun is, is, the, is like the, the, how God communicates his worth to our hearts through the person of Jesus Christ. Um, 
I know that makes sense up here, but I'm praying that God will continue just to awaken that in our hearts. And I know a lot of you guys know that. I'm, if anything, I'm probably just reminding you of this. Salvation is more than having your passport stamped forgiven and getting the ticket into heaven. Salvation is the awakening of your heart and your soul and your mind and your affections and your heart to discovering the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man discovered that treasure, do you remember the story, what he did? He went home and he kind of did a, a quick assessment. I've got the house, I've got the car, I've got my stock portfolio. He did a quick analysis of everything that he had. And he said, I'm going to liquidate all this. Because I have discovered a treasure that is exceedingly far more precious and valuable than what I, what I consider valuable. He said, he said, Jesus said, the guy, in his, he sold everything, and then in his joy, not in his teeth-gritting discipleship obedience, <laughs> not in his, oh, I got to do this because it's the right thing to do, in his, the overflow of joy in his heart at the worth of the treasure, he sold everything to acquire that field. Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what he did when he came to earth to ransom you and I. He sold the farm. He sold everything and became poor so that we might become his treasure. And the, and the opposite is true, too. We, when we encounter Jesus legitimately, when we begin to, begin to have our spiritual eyes awakened to his worth and to his majesty and to just the wonder of who he is, we, the grip that we hold so tightly on the earthly things that we consider so precious gets loosened up a little bit, a little bit, and a little bit because we're exchanging it for something far greater. Paul said, when Paul analyzed his life, he was, you know, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a persecutor of the church. In his zeal, he was, you know, top of the class because he was persecuting Christians when he was Saul. And when he looked back over his life, when he looked back over everything that he thought was precious, all of his accomplishments, he said, all of that is like dung, like garbage. It's like, it's like nothing compared to the, the ex, he uses the phrase, the excellency, the amplified version uses the surpassing greatness or the supreme worth of knowing, there's that word again, and encountering in a progressive way. Jesus Christ. And he said that I might know him and become one with him. And so there's something about Jesus that I want to provoke us in a good way. I want to challenge us to continually go after. God said, uh, Paul said this, that God was pleased to have all of his fullness, the fullness of who God is, his power, his wisdom, his majesty, his goodness, his kindness, his justice, everything that makes God the Father God and God the Holy Spirit God and God the Son says that God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, was pleased together to have all of his fullness dwell where? No, not, well, yeah, in us. But before it gets there, he says, God was pleased. This is in Colossians. God was pleased. It brought a smile on his face. It brought joy to his heart to have all of his fullness dwell in the person of Jesus Christ in the human frame of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. I mean, lived in a backwater town. Vera thinks that's funny. <laughs> it is funny because it's scandalous, because God stepped out of heaven. That's what makes Christianity so different than anything else, that we proclaim that Jesus Christ is fully 100% God and yet 100% fully human. He's, he's lived 
and gone through everything that you will ever go through. He's experienced everything. And right now, seated next to the majesty in heaven is a man. He's your high priest. He's your brother. He's your older brother. He's the the one that's coming back to the planet to rule the nations. He's bringing heaven to earth. And he dwells in us by his spirit. And the worth of who he is, is indescribably, we need to be awakened from time to time to to take stock of our lives and to say, okay, what is really precious in my life versus the worth of this man, Jesus Christ? There's, a, there's, a, there's an incredible theologian and pastor and teacher, and he's got the coolest name. His name is Sam Storms. And he wrote a book. He's a pastor in Texas, wrote a book called Enjoying God. I think, it, I think that's the name of it. Anyway, he said this phrase that just crushed me. He said, Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. And if you think about it, it's really true. What brings you the most pleasure in life? Just think about that for a second. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's the prospects of having a good job. Maybe it's just your friends. Maybe it's having a really good meal. Maybe it's a good movie. Maybe it's a good book. Whatever brings you pleasure, typically you value the most. And God is all about revealing to us the worth of his son so that we might gain superior pleasure in our life by experiencing and knowing and coming to get acquainted with him for real and doing life together with him. So anyway, um, that's why Psalms, like Psalm 45, is really precious to me. When we have our eyes open to see a glimpse, even a dim what I like to call dim, faint glimpses of the worth of Jesus. It recalibrates our heart. It blows everything else off the table momentarily and gives us fresh perspective. And and Paul said this. He said, we all with unveiled faces are contemplating or or we, we are beholding as in a mirror the Lord's glory. I mean, think about that for a minute. Paul said, we all, we're not like Moses. We don't have a veil over our face. Our eyes have been opened to understanding who Christ is. And and we're on a journey. We're contemplating. We're beholding as in a mirror the Lord's glory. And as we're doing that, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. Mirrors in old biblical ancient days were polished metal. They were really dim. They were really dull, and you might be looking pretty bad, but you can look into that and say, hey, I'm, I'm having a pretty good day today. Paul said, even when we get dim encounters, dim beholdings of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, it is sufficient enough, even if we don't feel anything, even if it's uninspired or weak or un, we don't feel anything. When we are spending time pursuing this person called Jesus Christ, reading his word, turning it into prayer, slowing our hearts down, asking for the Lord to continually open our, open our spirits to understand who he is. Over time, those little dim and uninspired encounters and reading his word and connecting with him, whether we feel it or not, are transforming us by God's grace more and more from one degree of glory to one degree of glory, and we don't even realize it because the focus is not about us. The focus is on what we're beholding. So we become what we behold. So um, passages like Psalm 45, which I I am going to get to, um, as we slow down, as we turn them into conversation, they change us. When the disciples were on the road to Emmaus 
and it was resurrection morning, and they thought, you know, they were downcast, they were depressed, they were interpreting life through their own lenses of disappointment. Have you ever done that? You, you, you look at life through your own disappointment, through your own interpretation, and, and they're talking about Jesus who was, you know, they had put their hope and trust in, and their world was rocked because they saw him crucified and die. And, and they're literally going to this village called Emmaus, and alongside them comes Jesus. And he draws out of them their discussion, and he draws out of them their thinking, and he just, he's a really good listener, and he's really good at asking questions. Bible, Isaiah calls him a wonderful counselor. Um, and he drew out of these guys, or I don't know, maybe it was women, it doesn't really, it, I, I don't think it says, but... He drew out of them what they were talking about, and then they got kind of offended and said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's going on? You know, sometimes when, when Jesus draws things out of us, he offends us. Sometimes when our minds are offended, it's because the Lord is drawing stuff up out of our hearts to deal with stuff that he knows is there, that, but we don't know that, that are there. So he offends us sometimes, drew up these issues in their understanding of, of the events and their interpretation, and then he just lovingly corrects them. And then he uses, this is what's so cool, he uses the written word of God and he begins to go through the, the law of Moses and the prophets and he begins to use the written word of God to teach them, these slow of heart knuckleheads, about who Jesus really was. And when he left them, do you remember what they said? Do you remember when Jesus finally, he broke bread and then he like, he did like a Jedi master trick and just kind of like disappeared do you remember what, he, what they said to themselves? They said, did not our hearts burn within us as he did two things? As he walked with us, they didn't even know that the Son of God, the creator on the planet, was walking with them. That's how humble he is. That's how close he is. That's why I appreciate worship, because he's in the room. He's inside of you. You've been joined with him spiritually, whether you feel it or not. He's got you. You're Paul says that God has placed us in Christ anyway. It's a different, for a different time. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he walked with us and as he spoke with us and as he opened our hearts and minds to the, to the written word of God? So when heaven comes alongside of you in your mundane, everyday devotional Bible reading, when heaven takes this written word and begins to reveal experientially to your heart about the living word, Jesus, a couple things happens. One is your heart begins to be stirred and you begin to burn with a holy longing. First of all, it's joy. It's overwhelmed with joy. And, but at the same time, real hunger, real spiritual hunger is stirred up within you to know more about him. And that's what Psalm 45 is for me. Psalm 45 is, it is a profound unveiling of Jesus Christ as king, as a warrior, as a conquering victorious warrior, as a righteous judge, and as a bridegroom. And we're not going to touch on all those today. I'm just going to go over a couple passages. But before we do, I'll leave you with one illustration. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Tolkien nerd. If um, John Mark is a Tolkien nerd. He just finished the Silmarillion like a month or so ago or whatever, a couple months ago. And, and our family over Christmas break, we just had a lot of time on our hands. We went back through and we did the, the Lord of the Rings marathon, however many hours that was with the extended version. And we were sitting there watching the return of the king. 
and there was a scene that's it's not done very well in the movie, but in the book, it's really beautiful. And Sam and uh, Frodo have just come through um, the whole encounter with Sheila the spider. They just come through the the tower at Kirith Ungol, and and they are in Mordor, and they're looking ahead to the journey, and there's still a long ways to go. And they're kind of on this mountain range area, this rocky mountain range, and they're looking ahead, and, and you know, Frodo, the, the burden of the ring is just overwhelming. He doesn't think he's going to make it. Sam is overwhelmed. They're tired. They're exhausted. So they're on this journey, and they're overwhelmed. They've come through a lot of hardships already, and, and it's night. Night has fallen, and it's desolate, the land is dark, it's forsaken, it's gloomy, it's, it's very depressing. And Frodo finally goes to sleep. And here's the passage from the book I want to read to you. It says, There peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor, and I guess that's just a word for peak or pinnacle. There peep, peeping above the cloud rack above a dark pinnacle high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. We don't use that word smote, but it means that the beauty of what he saw struck him at a deep place. It moved him very deeply in his heart. I love that. As he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, so cool. So in the end, the shadow with a capital S, the evil of Sauron and all that he represented was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And after he saw that, um, he was able just to forget about the worrisome stuff that was ahead. And it says in the book, for a moment, his own fate and even his master's fate ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid down and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, troubled sleep. Sometimes the journey is hard. Sometimes the journey is overwhelming. Sometimes we're exhausted. Sometimes we're tired. Sometimes when we think about what lies ahead, we don't know how we're going to get through it. But I want to say to you that in the person of Jesus Christ, there's a light and there's a beauty that is transcendent and is in a category all by itself and is matchless. And the whole point of your salvation is that you, on this side of eternity, would begin to be awakened to see through a cloud, even through a dim and a dim beholding, amidst all the darkness and amidst all the obstacles, perhaps even amidst the own failures of your own life, that you would see a, a high, glorious light that not only captivates you and blows you away and takes your breath away, but sets you on a course of giving you renewed hope renewed strength, and gives you peace and rest along the way. And that's what Psalm 45 is a little bit like. And so let's turn there to Psalm 45. And I just want to cover a few verses with, with you today. How are we doing on time? You guys good? Still with me? 1230? What time do you guys usually get out of here? No, that's all right. Yeah, have time. Okay, Psalm 45, like I said, it's a, it's a psalm that was written for a king on his wedding day, most probably Solomon. Um, and it says, Psalm 45, for the director of music. So it's a poetic song, okay? It's, it, was, it says, to the tune of the lily. So it's, it's a song or a poetic song that was actually 
set to a particular tune, and it was written by of the sons of Korah. And my translation says it was a maskil, which is a, a, a Hebraic word for an instructive poem or, or instructive story. And, it's a, and it says it's a wedding song. Let me just read a few verses, and then we'll, we'll come back and just touch on a couple. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I cite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. My translation, verse 2, says, You are the most excellent of men. Other translation says, You are the fairest of men. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Verse 3, gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth and humility and justice. I love that. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. I love that too. I don't have to pick and choose. I love the whole the whole thing. So your throne, let nations fall beneath your feet. I mean, this is a powerful warrior riding out on behalf of truth, humility, and justice. And he's clothed with majesty. He's in a class all by himself. He's clothed with splendor. There's no one like him. He's the most excellent of men. Verse seven, verse six. This is what the Hebrews, writer of Hebrews pulls out into the New Testament and says, this is, an, this is fulfilled in Christ. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So the writer of this goes from perhaps thinking about Solomon on his wedding day and something opens up in his spirit and he sees glimpses of the Messiah and its fulfillment. He says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness. You hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So much here. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from palaces adorned with ivory, the music of strings make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride and the gold of Ophir. Last verse here. So this is a bridegroom we see. Listen, daughter. Now he's turning his attention to the bride. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he's your lord. Just touch on a couple verses and we'll and we'll finish up here. Number one, it's it was a wedding song. You guys know this up here, and we sang a little bit about this, but maybe you don't. But on your calendar, whether you realize tonight, you're going to a wedding at the end of the ages. All of history, if you read through the book of Revelation, history in Genesis starts off with God creating man and woman and giving them together, betrothing them together. Adam and Eve. Creation opens up with a wedding. All through the Old Testament, there are prophetic declarations that Israel is like a betrothed bride to God, that God is like a bridegroom to Israel. Um, I just don't have time to go into all of it, but it's true. And then Jesus shows up, and the very first miracle he does is where? At a wedding. He turns the, the water into wine. And then then. Jesus even goes on record when some followers of John the Baptist says, hey, how come your disciples don't fast like we fast or the Pharisees fast? And he said, and Jesus goes on record and said, I'm the bridegroom of Isaiah. He says, look, how can the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? 
He goes, but there's coming a day when the bridegroom's going to be taken away. And in that season, in that period of history, when the bridegroom is not physically present with them, the bride and the friends of the bride are going to be struck with a holy lovesickness for him. And they're going to fast, not out of some type of sense of duty and twisting God's arm, but they're going to fast. And he's introducing a whole new paradigm of fasting. He says, there's going to come a day on the earth where the people of God are going to be marked by such hunger and longing for their bridegroom that they're going to fast just because he's not with them, you know? And so anyway, that's a whole different message. But then Revelation culminates after the Antichrist is thrown, overthrown, after uh, Lucifer is put into the pit of fire, the lake of, of burning, of sulfur forever and ever and ever, after everything, after the harlot of Babylon is thrown down and cast down. I mean, after all these tremendous cosmic events that are literally shifting the planet and getting ready for the kingdom of God to come, it culminates in the wedding celebration of the Lamb. And you guys, whether you realize it or not, you may know this, but we don't live like it for the At least I don't live like it. That is on your calendar. That's like getting a, 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 a calendar app and you can't take off an event on your calendar app and it's called the Wedding Celebration Feast of the Lamb and you're going to it, whether you realize it or not and you're going to be an integral part of it if you've said yes to Jesus and you're going to have an integral part to play as his companion as he rules the kingdoms of the earth and bringing the kingdom of God. He wants you by his side. He's not content to rule the Father's kingdom apart from you. And the, the, the whole thing of a bride is not, it's, a, it's not a male-female thing. It's an identity thing. You're cherished. You're sought after. You're deeply enjoyed. He didn't send his son simply to um, stamp your passport. He, he deeply longs for you. And he deeply longs for you to experience the holy jealousy that he has over your life. That's what holiness is all about. It's growing and being conquered by his jealousy over the lesser things that we give our heart to. Anyway, it's a wedding song. And, and I just wonder if passages of this psalm we're going to be singing one day. I don't know, but it is a wedding song, and it's ultimately fulfilled uh, in the book of Revelation, we, and we can read about that later. But it was written by the sons of Korah. Does anyone know who Korah was in the Old Testament? During Moses' times? Anybody? Bear, who was he? Yeah, what did he do? He like led 250 guys against Moses, said, hey, who are you? And God was so angered by his rebellion. First of all, so that's a lesson in and of itself. Let's not grumble against leadership, no matter how unfair or how unjust, that God knows what he's doing with leadership in our lives. Um, Grumbled, led 250 guys uh, against Moses, and God caused an earthquake literally to open and to swallow up Korah and his family. And then, if that's not enough, God released fire throughout the camp, and the 250 men that were joined Korah in the rebellion were totally just taken out. It's like Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of stuff, you know? I mean, it's probably crazier than that, terrifying. Um, and But it says in Numbers, later in Numbers, that the line of Korah was not completely wiped out, that his sons and some of his descendants were preserved. And here we see these are the very descendants of Korah. And the point is this. These guys were worship leaders in the tabernacle of David. They were anointed song leaders, inspired worship leaders, temple assistants and writers, and they've written, I think, about 11 psalms throughout the whole 
book of Psalms, and some of them are very beautiful. They wrote the one Psalm. They're marked by this deep hunger for God. The one is like, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. That's these guys. These guys are descendants of probably the most, one of the most notorious dudes in the history of Israel. And so the point is this, no matter how shameful or rebellious your past, no matter how shameful or rebellious the, your family's history, God is able to take by his mercy and grace you and your past and because of his goodness and mercy work his purposes both for your good and for his glory together in and through your life. I mean, so I just, I'm like, I just got that out of the very beginning. Like, these guys are descendants of a guy whose family line should have been wiped out. But God said, no, I'm redeeming that, and I'm turning him for good. I'm giving them this holy assignment of becoming prophetic psalmists in the Bible. And so they, they say this. They say that my heart is stirred by a noble theme. One translation says, my heart is indicting a pleasing matter. You have a thing inside of you called a heart. The proverb says, above all else, guard your heart. It's the seed of your affections. The Bible says that out of your heart, the very issues of life come out of it. Inside of your heart, uh, or God's designed your heart in such a way that you were designed to be deeply moved by the nobility of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Deeply moved by his majesty. And those are big words, but uh, just put beauty or nobility or his, his, I don't know, what do you think of when you think of nobility? His stateliness, his worth. And these guys saw glimpses, probably started out with Solomon, but they went on to see glimpses of the Messiah. And they said, my heart is stirred. And that word stirred means to be deeply moved. It's the picture is that something that is so moved that it's it overflows and it starts to bubble up. It's like a river that is this dry stream bed, but during um, the rainy season, it just overflows. It becomes so flooded that it overflows its banks. You, as men and women created in the image of God, were created by a God of deep passion. And you, one of the, the trademarks of being created in the image of God is that you have the capacity to be stirred deeply at a heart level to the point where your heart overflows. And not just for the things of the world, but for deep, holy, beautiful, noble things. And the ultimate way that that is fulfilled in any believer's life is that it's stirred and it's moved and it it overflows and it, it boils over by seeing glimpses of the nobility of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I turn that into prayer and say, Lord, I don't feel very stirred. In fact, I feel kind of disconnected, but would you would you give me ongoing glimpses of your nobility and your worth in such a way that I'm deeply moved, that my heart is stirred? I want my heart to be awakened. Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom. And he's praying to Christians that God would give you the spirit of wisdom in, the re- in Revelation, that your eyes would be enlightened, that you might know the hope of your calling and the glorious riches of his inheritance in you and his incomparably great power. You guys, we need as the body of Christ, we have so much that has covered our spiritual eyesight that we're so burdened down by the cares and concerns of this world. I believe that God wants to take his bride and awaken her spiritual senses in a fresh way to behold this king in all of his nobility. Not that we'll ever get it, because I think we'll be spending all of eternity uncovering and encountering his matchless worth. But you guys... 
we're meant to be stirred at a heart level and inspired and motivated and strengthened and empowered by encountering glimpses of his worth and that you would be wrecked by it. Not that you walk around 24-7, you know, on this IV of spiritual high, you know, but that periodically through your life that you encounter his worth in such a way that just not only takes your breath away, but recalibrates your heart and humbles you and draws out of you deeper hunger and deeper thirst. That's what true salvation is. Father, Jesus said, right before he went to the cross in John 17, he said, Father, you know, this is, he's going to the cross. He's going to lay his life down for his bride. And he looks down through all of history and he said, Father, I thank you for those that you will give me from their testimony, from the original disciples' testimony. I pray that they would be with me so that they may see my glory. You guys, that doesn't start in heaven. First of all, heaven's coming to earth. And, but it starts the moment that we say yes to Jesus. And the goal is to get our hearts awakened so that we see glimpses of his nobility and his worth and his glory. And, his, and we reevaluate our life and we said, I'm buying the field. I'm signing back up again. I'm buying it. It's worth it. Okay, it's like seeing the star that uh, that Tolkien described and being renewed and strengthened and inspired and finding hope and peace and all of that through this person. So verse two, here's what stirred his heart. The, the object of his. Of what was going on in his heart was a person who said, you are the most excellent of men. One translation says you are fairer than the sons of men. And. Basically, what he's saying, he said, you're in a class all you're by yourself, this king. There are, you are indescribably beautiful. You are indescribably majestic. Um, one translation says, it's double, and it says, beautiful, beautiful, beyond the sons of Adam. Sounds like something out of, I don't know, Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or something. But Jesus Christ, hidden in the person of Jesus Christ, waiting for our discovery is a endless source of beauty and majesty. Uh, I think someone said it earlier this morning, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Seated at, at God the Father's right hand is the source of eternal excellence. And his name is Jesus Christ. Paul said, oh, for the excellency of knowing him. Um, every year or every time, the Olympics are coming on pretty soon, aren't they? Like in a couple weeks. And every four years, uh, my wife, everything just kind of shuts down a little bit in our house. We, I mean, the Michael Phelps thing, the Usain Bolt. Did you guys see Usain Bolt when he crossed the finish line just smiling at the cameras? I mean, it's just nuts. It's crazy. Michael Phelps. But there's something about seeing athletes compete and the Greeks were really into this, but seeing athletes compete at their top form, we would call that excellence. Something that's inspiring about that, cheering your favorite team on. Something that when we see a man or woman performing or achieving at their top level, we see it's, it's just excellent and it inspires us. And this writer of Psalm 45 is saying, in Jesus Christ is the source of everything excellent that your heart could ever desire. He said, you are the most excellent. You're in a class all by yourself. And then he starts to unpack why he's the most excellent of, of men. And, I'll, and we'll just close with this last verse. 
he says, your lips have been anointed with grace. Does anybody have a different translation? You don't have your Bibles open. Does anyone have a different translation? Verse 2. Grace is poured into your lips. This, anybody else have a different translation? That's kind of crazy. That's kind of weird sounding. He got an infusion of grace, you know. He got Botox in his lips or something. It says, you are the most excellent men. And the number one reason why he begins to unpack is your lips have been anointed with grace. Well, everywhere Jesus went, um, I don't know if you remember this, but in the Gospels, people, Jesus stood up in his hometown, took the scroll and read Isaiah 61. And the people are like, who is this guy? No one ever speaks like this. They were amazed by his words. Even one time when the temple guards were sent out to arrest him, they came back empty-handed. They said, why didn't you arrest him? They're like, he speaks like nobody else. You know, the Pharisees and the religious teachers, they speak like, you know, learned, education, educated men. But this guy has authority. His words cast demons out. His words raise people from the dead. And Jesus said, the words that I speak are spirit and life. And, Peter's, and Peter, uh, Jesus provoked his disciples more than once. He said, he provoked this whole crowd of people and they left him because he said, you know, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you don't have any part of him. And like, people are like totally offended and wigged out and they left. And he turns to his disciples. He said, you guys want to leave too? And, and you remember what Peter says? Peter like does the math. He goes, where else are we going to go, man? You have the words of you. When you speak, our hearts beat faster. Something comes alive inside of our, our hearts. You have the words of eternal life. Jesus said, my words are spirit and life. Jesus is one of Jesus's titles is he's the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. And one of his titles in Revelation, he's the word of God. He, Jesus is the internal thought life and the wisdom and the, the internal communication of the Godhead made flesh. That's who he is. It's all of his wisdom. It's all of his power. It's all of his counsel in a human body. And that's who you're betrothed to. That's who's dwelling inside of you right now. And it says that his lips are anointed with grace. Grace has two meanings to me. Grace, anybody, when you think of grace, what do you think of? Unmerited favor, yeah. Um, I just call that unfair kindness. You know, when you think of grace, grace is kindness or favor or goodness being given to you when you don't deserve it. So... Um, Jesus's lips, his words, what comes out of his mouth, everything that comes out of his mouth are infused and coated with unfair kindness. We get what we don't deserve from Jesus. But grace also is power in weakness. It's strength. Uh, God, Jesus told Paul, he says, my power is made perfect. My grace is perfected in your weakness. So it's not only unmerited favor, it's not only unfair kindness, but it's strength and power to accomplish what we need to accomplish um, supernaturally. God gives us strength. Um, years ago, when we were in Kansas City and when the kids were little, uh, they opened up a new Krispy Kreme donut shop. Have you guys ever been to one of those? And have you seen, they, so the donuts, yes, glory, the donuts come up out of the, the oil and they're on this conveyor belt. Have you seen that? You know what they pass under before they come out warm and you can eat them remember what it is it's a glaze it's like this waterfall of glaze right and the picture that I have is I've just kind of been thinking about this is 
So when Jesus speaks to us, whether it's through the written word of God and the Holy Spirit is breathing on it or he just gives us these impressions or whatever, his words come to us and they are like those donuts. This sounds really funny, but it's really a cool application. That He's bringing up things up out of his heart, but before they leave his mouth, they go through a waterfall. They're just infused with grace. And they, buy, they are so coated and anointed with grace as they leave his mouth and they penetrate our heart, they bypass all of our defenses. They bypass our, our you know, we think, you know, for years and years and years, I thought I had to get my act together because I, I just was so aware of my shortcomings. And I just always had this nagging feeling that I wasn't doing enough to God, earn God's approval. I don't know about you, but I lived for decades under this religious performance mentality. And I had this picture of God just, yes, he stamped my passport, but he really, when I really thought of how he thought about me, he was pretty frustrated with me. He's like, come on, Weissman, get your act together. I have to put up, I have to extend grace to you again. That's the picture I had of him. I don't know if that, if you connect with that or not, but that's how I had. And, um, Wow, this, I wasn't going to share this, but real quick, two stories. Um, I struggled very deeply for a long time, um, particularly when the internet came out with pornography on the internet. And I was working uh, at the time as a youth pastor. And I went to this meeting feeling tremendous shame and guilt and condemnation. And I don't know if you guys remember back in the day, there was this revival thing going on down in Brownsville, Florida. Do you guys hear about, ever hear about that? So there was a speaker at this church over in Youngstown and it was just, I mean, it was really crazy. And you can feel the weighty presence of the Lord. And I don't know what happened, but I was just on the floor. Um, I think they had to bring in professional cleaners and clean up all the snot and tears and all that. But I was literally on the floor and I felt the weighty, holy presence of Jesus like I never felt before. And the closer, and it was like, it was like this image I had that he was just walking towards me. And... The closer he got, the more aware of my dirt and my filth and my shame, and I just wanted to hide. You know, I can't imagine in, in Revelation, it says, when he fully comes again, people are going to cry out, and they're going to cry to the mountains and say, fall on us, cover us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. But the good news is that when you put your faith and trust in him, that wrath has been poured out on Jesus, and we get unfair kindness. Anyway, so as I sensed him coming closer to me, I just wanted to hide because I was so aware of my, my shame and my guilt. I mean, we are guilty, right, you know? And, um, and I just couldn't look at him. And so I, I felt like he was, like, just down on his knees. And, and there I am, this sm- sobby mess. And he was, he's like, I just, John, I just want you to look at me in the face. And I couldn't do it. And um, so I just felt, this sounds really weird and it's kind of personal, but I felt like, like he kind of put his hand on my chin and, and just kind of, lifted my chin up. He's like, I really want you to open your eyes. Look at me. I couldn't do it. And I just kept my eyes closed. And, and, and um, he, I felt like the impression was that he just gently kind of kissed my eyelids. And when he, when he did that, it was just like, I experienced just like this holy fire throughout my whole body, through my, my heart, my conscience. And it was just like I was clean and I can just not only open my eyes, but just sense his embrace his love. Another time I was um, in my office as a youth pastor and I was reading through the passage and it's either in first or second Corinthians. And it talks about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Right. And I, you guys know that passage? It's, they do it at all the weddings. And uh, it's, it's what you're supposed to read at a wedding. 
And love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. And the passage that I was reading in the Amplified Version says, love is, bears all things and is ever ready to believe the best about another person. Love like takes it all on, never fails, never crumbles under the weight of disappointment and hardship, and it bears it manfully, and it always is ready to believe the best about another person, despite what circumstances are saying to you. And so I was just kind of like agreeing with all this condemnation and all this shame and all this self-hatred and all this stuff. And, and I was reading this, and the, and the Lord just kind of broke in. He's like, John, why do you keep, I'm not like this. He said, I am ever ready to believe the best about who you are. And it was his lips releasing words of unfair kindness that crushed my heart and penetrated my defenses because I wanted to hide in my fig leaves. I wanted to run and I wanted to get my act together first. And then through my own righteousness and my own cleaning my heart up, then I could come before him and I could receive. And that's just is like filthy rags, the Bible says. And he said, no, that's not who I am. I am. I see the end uh, Misty Edwards sings this song, I knew what I was getting into, right, when I called you. I knew everything about your past, your present. I see you 100 years, 200, 300. I see you a million years from now, John, and what the result of my unfair kindness and grace and mercy uh, has accomplished in your life. You're clothed with my righteousness. You're actually part of my eternal family at my right hand, ruling the Father's kingdom with me with perfect majesty, perfect glory. You're glorified. Paul says that those he's called, he's justified. I'm going to get it all mixed up. He says those he's called, those he foreknew, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he He's already done, in his book, Jesus is outside of time, right? We live in time and space. But in Jesus, time is inside of Jesus. This is weird. But, but already, you're already glorified, past tense, in Christ. Paul says that God has placed us in Christ. And that he has become our wisdom, our righteousness, and our peace. You have a righteousness because you're hidden in Christ, whether you feel it or not, that you can't better the righteousness. It's Jesus was the only man on the planet to fulfill all of the law of God perfectly. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get a, do away with it. But I, in my 30 years, when no one was looking, I fulfilled the law. I loved God perfectly. When I was, temp- I was tempted in every way that you were ever tempted, but I joyfully, out of love for the Father and love for my bride, I said no to the flesh, no to the sin, and I fulfilled all righteousness. And then when I died on the cross, I said, Father, I'll take what they have. I'll take their lawlessness. I'll take their unrighteousness on myself, and I'll give them my perfect righteousness. It's not theoretical. It's historical. It's objective. He accomplished it. He was the only one to do it. And it's credited to your bank account, my bank account. And the thing is, you guys, we, get to, we have to learn how to walk that out. We have to learn how to draw out of Christ. Paul, Peter says that by his glory and goodness, he has called you. Out of his glory and goodness, he's called you. And to his glory and goodness, he's called you. And he's given us everything that we need to live a righteous, godly life through our knowledge of him who's called us. As we get to know this one who's the most excellent of men, 
as we get to, as we pull aside and we spend time devotionally asking him to help us get to know him, our lives are just, they're transformed from glory to glory. We draw out of him everything that he's already given to us. We learn how to write checks and walk out this righteousness because of his mercy and his kindness. And we learn how to do life with him. Your lips are anointed with grace. You guys, when you go to the Lord the next time, most of us, I don't know about you, but for a long time, I was expecting this backhand. You know, I was expecting this, this anger, frustrated God who, I keep saying, stamped my passport, and I had an intellectual knowledge of it, but I didn't have a heart knowledge of it. And he's all about destroying the false images that we hold on to about who, who he is and about giving us unfair kindness that conquers our hearts and melts our hearts and opens our hearts up and helps us learn how to walk with him. I'm going to stop there. Um, um, so that's just kind of an introduction, you know, to this incredible psalm. And there's, that's just the beginning of why Jesus Christ is everything that you could hope for. Gillette has a commercial. I think it's called The Best a Man Can Be, right? Best a man can get. Okay. There's an advertising guy right there for you. Well, Jesus is the best a man can get, can be inside of Jesus Christ. There is everything that your heart longs for and aspires to. He's the most excellent. He's the most, he's beyond what we can think or imagine, but yet he's made himself personally available to us. And you guys, we can have as much of him as we're hungry for. Some writer in the New Testament said, if you come to me with a little, be careful what you measure things with. If you, come with, if you measure things in the kingdom and principles of God with a little measure, that's all you're going to get. But if you come with a full, I'm paraphrasing, but a full bucket empty and said, I just need more. The hungrier you are for this person called Jesus Christ, the more you're going to get over a lifetime. But if you have enough of him and you're not very hungry, then you're not going to get very much. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. I just want to close in prayer. Gabe, is there anything that you want to close out with or anything? Or is it okay if I just close in prayer? Uh, Write checks out too. Uh, Yeah, we're going to collect offering or anything? (laughs) We don't do that here? Okay. It's free. Okay. Let's just, let's just pray. You guys are crazy, man. Um, Jesus, I thank you for every person here. You, you created them. And whether we know it or not, we are sons and daughters, but we're more than that. We're part of this global company, this global family called the Bride of Christ. And in this psalm, we see glimpses of this warrior king, this this righteous judge, and this passionate bridegroom. And every one of those has a unique revelation of your heart and what your leadership is like and how you think about things and how you care about things and how you view things. And I just thank you for the plans and purposes that we're not here by accident. Each one here today was created because you spoke us into existence. And Colossians says that you hold all things together by the power of your word. You're literally holding us together. And you've brought us here and 
brought us into history for such a time as this. I pray that today we would have a glimpse of, that you would inspire us to have a, vi- a, a 10 or 20 year vision of a devotional life in Jesus. That we wouldn't just go strong for a week or month, but that we would have endurance for the long haul of spending time with you and drawing out of you all that God has hidden into you. That we would be like those hobbits in Middle Earth when we see glimpses of your your transcendent beauty, it would conquer us over and over and over. And whether we realize it or not, that it would begin, that would be the source of our holiness, our transformation, our sanctification. We confess we are weak and we're like the disciples. We're slow to believe and we're weak of heart. (laughs) But I pray that you'd come and awaken our hearts to the worth of this one that's seated by your side, Father, and is coming. Thank you that you said you would never leave us. You would never forsake us. You've given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit as a deposit of our inheritance, as a spirit of adoption. So come and mark each one here today. Thank you for where they are. I just cancel the assignment of hell that would want to discourage or condemn in any way. And I just loosen goodness and mercy that it would follow us all the days of our life. Thank you for your peace and your rest. Thank you for the oil of joy that flows from you like no one, no one else. We love you because you first tagged us and you said, I love you. I just want to say that the Lord says, I love you. I really like you. I really like you. Even as you're growing, even as you're maturing, I enjoy you. There's a psalm, there's a passage in Isaiah that says, you'll be known by a new name. You'll be called the one in whom the Lord delights. You'll no longer be called forsaken or desolate, but you'll be called the one whom the Lord delights because the Lord is married to you. So come, awaken our hearts. Thank you for this time together. Bless this family, bless this community. In Christ's name, amen.